Let's do the mean tweet, shall we? She's a cop. That's it. She says the same thing in every interview and presentation. Nothing new or inspiring here. What? The nose is fine. The outfit is piggish. Emoji with the one, two, three, four pig emojis. I really do not like your hand gesture. It is very offensive and aggressive looking. I'm Greek. I love the episode, but I need a word with your hairdresser. Okay. What would you like to say to my hairdresser? Wow, it's so amazing. So I'll pass on the message. Oh, another book review. If I could give fewer stars, I would. Writing is cocky and condescending. She comes across as a typical abrasive New Yorker. Thank you. I couldn't take it, so I going to find something more worthwhile. You got a grammar check this shit. A whole lot of fluff and very little help. The amount of curse words really make it feel like she's trying too hard and comes off as just arrogant. The chapters on how to manipulate and trick people to get what you want. First of all, I don't manipulate and trick people. This is an authentic book. You obviously didn't read the whole thing. It's not biography because you read the book. So you sit there and you have, and you give me a one when you're a one star. What is this? quite a bit from a lot of my fans on how to stand up to yourself when you have very strong parents because I'm Greek and you're Greek right the culture is very strong and so family pressures are a real thing and family pressures I think can very often dictate how someone acts in life and for me when like when I met Tom it's what we call in the Greek idanxenos so as translation he was a guest which basically means he's not a Greek and even just that word, right? He's a xeno. Stranger. Stranger. He's an outsider. Yeah, an He's outsider. He's really outsider. He's an outsider. He's not one of us. Yes, exactly. When Tom went to ask my dad for his blessing to marry me, my dad said no. And Tom didn't understand at the time, but my dad was like, look, you know, I've come from a village. I've really worked my, you know, hard to um, protect my family, to put a roof over her head, you know, and you're, you know, a young kid with, you know, not really a job and you want to marry my daughter and take her to America. So my dad just was like, you know, no, I won't give you your blessing. And Tom was very respectful and said, look, thank you for your feedback. I'm just going to let you know. I respectfully listen to you, but I'm still going to propose to your daughter. I don't want to do it behind your back. So I'm telling you up front. And so Tom proposed. I'm like, so excited, you know, like losing my mind, was so excited, thought everyone would be excited. And my dad's like, Right, that, that was his response. And I'm like, I don't understand. So I realized after Tom, once we celebrated, he's like, your dad actually didn't want me to propose. And I was heartbroken. And after I spoke to my dad, he was like, he doesn't know your culture. He doesn't come from where you come from. How are you guys going to get along? How are you going to bring up your children? And I was really upset, like really upset, heartbroken. It didn't make me think, do I marry this man or not? Because I was so in love with Tom that I was like, I'm gonna marry this man. But 
I didn't know how to handle the negativity coming from my dad because I just wanted my dad to be happy and love us and love the family and be excited for us. Now, at the time, I didn't show him how upset I was. I was crying on the side. I was talking to Tom. I was, you know, telling Tom how much it broke my heart. And I just tried to forget it because I was like, he's my dad. I love him. I don't want him, you know, out of my life, obviously. But... um, but I'm still going to marry him. And even though I can sense my dad isn't happy or keen, um, I'm going to show him, right? Like, I'm going to show him. Now, 20 years later, I actually completely understand where my dad comes from. And it wasn't hating. It wasn't negative. It was his perspective. Understanding where he came from, understanding that for him, he'd never seen cultures blend and work. I was the first person to actually marry out of the Greek culture on my dad's side of the family. So he'd never seen it. So just like anything, right? You see what, when you see something, you think it's possible. A lot of the time, if you don't see something, you don't think it's possible. Back then it was, oh my God, he's being negative. My ego's been dented. I feel bad. I felt like he was saying I was a bad woman. Like I couldn't be a good wife and that's why it wouldn't work. That's what I heard. So when I think about now, family backlash and things like that. I just go, where are they coming from? What's their perspective that they have this view? And taking Lisa out of the equation, the Lisa personal thing out of the equation. I don't have an issue with any of that stuff when it comes to immediate family, because I'm able to, thankfully, for the most part, immediate families, you know, been okay for me, right? And I, I have been able to, maybe not when I was younger, but as I got older, I let... I don't want to say a lot of things go, but I've learned to accept everybody as they are because I'm not perfect, so they're not perfect. I don't fit the criteria they want me to fit into, and I totally get I totally get that. So I'm, I've actually been okay with having that perspective. But didn't your parents, were they okay with you being a police officer? Oh, no. So how did you handle that then? I did it anyway. Break they, it down. My, you said, I'm going to go to the police force, and they're like, they what are you doing? They stopped speaking to me. For how long? The whole time I was in the academy. What? Yeah. So, I mean, how... So it hurt, but I knew I was doing something good. I, I, but how, I, do you, how do you actually do that? Take me through it. Like, having the guts to go, I'm doing something good, even if I don't speak to my... Like, how do you emotionally get through that, girl? Because here's the thing. Right now, you're, you're freaking stoic, and I love how, like, your conviction, but I'm sure people at home are wondering, but how do you do that? You wake up, mm-hmm. you put your uniform on, which is what I did, got my gear, and I walked out the door, and I got in the car, and I drove to the police academy. If I sat there, and I thought about everything that everybody said, I'll do this. I did a checklist. Am I hurting anybody? No. And I'm trying to do something good. Yes. Do I want to serve? Yes. Can I provide for myself? Yes. I did all the checks. Can I live with this choice? Yes. Can I live with not doing this? No. That's... It really, I simplified it. Sometimes it just is what it is. And I was like, I can't do this for anybody else. This is a job I'm going to do. This is a job I'm going to wake up every day to get up to go to work. They didn't understand it. I came from a culture where the women were not in law enforcement. I had nobody in my family in law enforcement at all. But I had a draw to it, a pull to it, because I really wanted to make an impact in a different way and help people. I grew up with around a lot of crime. We were exposed and very vulnerable, and I really kind of got sick of, of it. 
And look, that wasn't the first time I brawled with my parents. Like, I, my whole childhood and traveling over, I mean, you forget, I just told, you know, I'm traveling over the country, I'm doing all these things. So at that point, they're like, Evie, you know, they kind of got used to me, but they still pushed back. They were worried about me. It wasn't appropriate. People thought I was nuts. Again, my, my community was like, what is she doing? There goes Yanni's, how you say my dad's name in Greek. There goes Yanni's daughter again. Mm. That's all I heard. Even my friends were like, what are you doing? They're like, you want to be a cop? But I also felt like the feeling of feeling empowered, feel like the feeling of taking care of myself and taking care of other people. I just went. But then from that, I went to the Secret Service. And it's just like, oh, you're going where? Oh, you're going to work in the White House? Oh, maybe not so bad. Mm -hmm. I, I, I march, to some extent, I march to the beat of my own drum. I, I've always listened to my inner voice. And if it's not, I can't do something for somebody else. I just can't. So long as I'm not hurting anyone and harming anybody. But just because somebody thinks something do, doesn't mean I have to follow it. I always ask myself two questions when I sh struggle with something. I say, who is this person? And why should I listen to them? So if you bring me back to this example with my parents, right? In fact, my mom used to lie to everybody when they're like, oh, what does is, what is your daughter do now? Because I just graduated college. She, she would tell them, she's a secretary in, in Manhattan. She's got a really great secretary job. Oh, really? She would lie to everybody. Did that bother you? I thought it was funny. I thought it was, be, I just, I understood. This is a woman who grew up in a village. Mm -hmm. My, I, I had that ability to understand the perspective. But I was like, I'm not going to not do this because you think it's crazy. But most people stop there, though. That's my point. That's on them. Then you don't do it. And then you spend the rest of your life bitching and moaning about how your parents did you wrong. That's on you. There's an expiration date for how long you can blame somebody else for the dreams you didn't achieve. At the end of the day, when you become an adult, that is your choice. So I hear you, but I'm very adamant about this because when I hear this, it's like, you chose. Mm -hmm. I chose. I lived in a household because at the time I lived with my parents. They did not speak to me. They ignored me. They would, they would nothing. I did it anyway. And you know what? They came around and everything was okay. My purpose in life is not to convince everybody, but please, I need your permission. I would like to do this. Please give me your permission. I will do nothing. I will do nothing. I will accomplish nothing. I'm here to make my own choices, right or wrong, and I do the best job and I do them to the best of my ability. But I am not here to make choices to make the rest of the world happy. Do no harm, but live your life. Fuck yeah, look, girl, I'm so with you. Like, I love your intensity so much. I think that's one of the reasons we get along so well because I have the same mentality. The only thing that I have is absolute crippling negative voice as I'm doing it all. So I won't stop. I won't let other people dictate what I do. I may give reasons, but I don't abide by other, pers other people's rules about my own life. Fuck that shit, never. But... Every step of the way, I have the negative voice. It was like, oh my God, you're not going to be liked. Oh my God, what are you doing? Oh my God, that person's not going to like you. I just don't let it affect how I show up. Look, with those two questions I was telling you, who is this person, person, why should I listen to them? So if we bring it back to my parents, right? If we bring it back to my mom, who is this person? This is my mother. She grew up in, in poverty. She grew up in a village where they, they were just trying to survive. There were right. five, six people living in one little room this a quarter of the size of this the rug that we're on mm -hmm. she had a different mindset a different upbringing she was just trying to get to the next day yeah. and when they came to america again it was the same thing it was just survival this was beyond what she she thought was capable but that's who this person is i understand that 
Now, why should I listen to her? Because she's my mom? <laughs> what experience or expertise does my mother have to give me, give me advice on this specific thing? She did not. She could not. She didn't know what it was like to be a police officer. She didn't even understand what it was doing. Even when I put him for the Secret Service, she's like, oh, what is that? Mm-hmm. I worked uh, as a Secret Service agent for years, and she didn't understand. I, you know, and I was armed. I had a weapon. She's like, yeah, but you don't really use it because I would dress in civilian clothes. And so I didn't tell her I went out and I did arrests or search warrants or interrogated cr- criminals. She could not understand that. Mm-hmm. So when you ask those two questions... You, that helps me at least assess why I should listen to a person. Who is this person? Are they a relevant human being in my life? So my mom's a relevant human, be- human being in my life. But why should I listen to them? Hmm, maybe not something I should listen to her about because she has no knowledge about this. Mm-hmm. It's so freaking strong. And for me, that's exactly why I got to that place that you're talking about as an adult. Right, like understanding where my dad come from, because we've spoken a lot about the fact that our both our parents came from villages with holes in the floor as their toilets. That's how um, you know impoverished our parents have come from. I love what you're saying. It took me a while to get there. I didn't think like that, which is why when my dad first said that, I was very upset because I saw my dad as a voice of authority. And it's interesting because I never thought about it until you were just breaking it down. I was like, why would I listen to my dad? Like, why was my inclination to listen to my dad every time? It's because he was a very dominant voice in my life of authority. And so out of habit, it became a, oh, if your dad says this, then that must be true. And that was one of the moments where I actually went against his wishes or went against him very deliberately. And in that moment, it's like, I really want my dad to be proud of me. But how can I be proud of myself if I don't follow my own heart? And I hate to freaking say it, and it's heartbreaking to ever think, you know, and obviously you've lost your father. Um, But I do think about that, that my parents aren't going to be around forever. That when you think about your family or your extended family... They, they aren't going to be there in day to day, let alone for the rest of your life. So what happens when that happens, when you've lost touch with someone or that someone passes away? Who are you living your life for then? And that really freaking hit me, girl, where it's like, it doesn't mean that I don't love someone. It doesn't mean that I don't respect them. It doesn't mean that if someone gives me an opinion that I don't agree with, that I still don't respect them or have, you know, intense feelings for them. I do, but I don't have to listen to them. Well, I guess I kind of look at it this way with your scenario. Who has to wake up every morning, roll over, and look at Tom? (laughs) You or Dad? You do. I I think sometimes it's just that simple. Your your family members can have good intent for you. There's nothing malicious in that. Mm -hmm. But you just have to understand when you should and shouldn't listen. Just because somebody is your family member, and maybe they have good intent, that does not mean it's in harmony with who you are and your value system, and it does not mean that you're supposed to listen. It's, it's not being defiant. It's just being, I have to choose. But, it's, but look, I think in the grand scheme of things, that's a pretty low-level thing when it comes to family. It's just being like, this is my mom. This is how she is. This is my dad. This is who they are. They mean no harm. They do their best. You accept them as they are rather than fighting them. I didn't waste my time fighting with my parents trying to convince them. Oh. I had no energy. I'm going to the police academy. I was getting my ass kicked every day. I was going to get kicked out if I didn't make the cut. I, I, I was so, I had to be focused. So I didn't have the time. I didn't have the freedom. 
I didn't have that. I was going to miss this opportunity. When I went to Secret Service training, same thing. I could not be distracted by them. Actually, that's interesting. Did their belief that you shouldn't be doing it have an impact of how you showed up at the police force? Was there any internal thing that was like, I'm going to prove it? Like, did it help you on your mission? Probably. Or I think whenever I've gotten pushback or hate or like when people are like, you can't do that. I think there's a saying, I'm completely going to butcher it, but I really like it. It's like, I can't quit now. I've got a whole bunch of motherfuckers to prove wrong. <laughs> I love that. I always think of that yeah. thing. But I do it for myself. Yes, people can give you drive. I think, but I never, look, it, don't get me wrong. It was hard. It's hard. Sure, it hurts your soul. It makes you sad. Like, I wasn't just like happy coming home. It was hard. I'm coming in the house. Nobody wants to talk to me. Everyone's ignoring me. Everyone thinks I'm nuts. You get tired of that. But I knew it was temporary. Mm. And I knew they would, they would get over it. I think the harder hate is when you get real hate from people because, the, you know, that is something I've experienced is, is getting hate from folks, people, friends, or people you know, where it's like very cruel hate or mean hate, people that can become bullies to you. I, I've seen that perspective. I've actually dealt with that. And, and having people kind of come at me that way, that has been a bit hard because I've always been very like mindful. I have to kind of monitor who's in my neighborhood or who I have in my circle. And over the years, I truly have had slowly like to kind of filter people out and push people in. I didn't always make the best choices with having people around me or the people I had around me maybe turned into not so good people. Mm. Sometimes when people give you hate, it has nothing to do with you and everything to do with them. But I always ask myself, if somebody says something to me, is there any truth to what they're saying? And if there isn't, or if I see this chaos, this volatility, this cruelness, because I have been the recipient of very cruel words and hatred. I usually, my default is like, I don't, I've had to like literally cut people out of my life. I haven't done it a lot, but I, I feel like once you cause me harm or once you do that, I, I, there's nothing I can do. If somebody's capable of giving hate and cruelness, I'm not that person. I've never been that person. So once I hear that meanness, that hate, mm. it's at that point, it's like, I can't, you, I can't be around you. We're, do you have done. any like process? Because as you were talking, I was like, oh, that's interesting how we have almost different stages of cutting people out. It's like, oh, I'm just going to accept this person for who they are because I love them. And so they're going to hate or have, let's say, doubt or negative thoughts about what I'm going to do. But I love them, so I'm going to keep them in my life. Option number two is um, I really love them, but I can't have them in my life on a day-to-day -day basis. So I'm going to engage with them Christmas and Easter. And then the third tier is, yeah, I can never speak to this person again because they are absolutely bad for my self-esteem, my mental state. And so I'm cutting them out completely. Do you ever then take someone and go, which bucket are they going to go in? Because as you were talking, I was like, I think I do that. I don't think of it as buckets, but it's really interesting. Like you always try to find the good in people, but I also, because I know human nature, just because you try to find the good in somebody doesn't mean that they're always operating on that level. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we all have good and bad, and most of us try to keep the good up here, but sometimes the bad prevails. But the thing is, these people don't know that they're doing that. They mm -hmm. think that I'm right to do this, I'm right to unleash on you. And then maybe because some people perceive me as being a strong person, they bring out the heavy if they want to like mm -hmm. say something to me. I haven't had that often in cutting people out, but I've probably done it on one or two occasions, definitely one occasion or two, maybe two, where I'm like, I, probably two, where somebody was tethered to me in some way and I'm like, this person is 
not a good person, I've completely pushed them out. I'm happy to give love. I've got love, but I got no time for hate. If you own your own business, when an employee leaves your company, whether on good terms or bad, it can feel, I hate to say it, but it actually can feel personal, like you and you alone are the one to blame. And it actually may even trigger you to lock down your business, not open yourself up and not actually risk trying anyone else. Like you actually would your heart after a bad breakup and avoid looking for that new partner altogether. Well, let's face it, sometimes we can do that with hires as well. And trust me, guys, I've been there. I get the thought of bringing in a new stranger into your business actually fills your heart with more anxiety than it does love and joy. But when you post your jobs on LinkedIn, you can actually feel the confidence that you will find the right person for the right job fast because LinkedIn isn't actually just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion billion with a B professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Because guys, it gives you access to professionals that you actually can't find anywhere else. And so LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive, which then makes hiring with confidence easy when you have that many quality candidates. And it's so easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get qualified candidates within 24 hours. So post your jobs for free at linkedin.com slash Lisa. That's linkedin.com slash Lisa to post your job for utterly free. And of course, terms and conditions always apply. As an entrepreneur, one of the biggest challenges you will face is the negative voice in your head. You know who I'm talking about? That maybe not so small part of you that loudly doubts your abilities to actually pull the things off and make a living from your passion project. But you've got to overcome that negative voice in your head, homie, because I'm telling you, you can do it especially if you use Shopify. Now, Shopify is an all-in-one global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From launching your business to hitting a million dollars, Shopify has got you completely covered. And with all the built-in Magic AI award-winning customer service and the internet's best converting checkout, you have everything you need to shut down the voice of doubt and make all your amazing business dreams a reality. That's exactly why, guys, I love Shopify. So if you want to start growing your business with more customers and sales, shut that negative voice down and prove her wrong that you can do it, Shopify is here for you. So go and sign up for just $1 a month with your trial period at shopify.com slash Lisa all lowercase. Again, guys, you can go to shopify.com slash Lisa right now to grow your business no matter where you are and what stage it's in. That's shopify.com slash Lisa. When Tom asked my father for his blessing to marry me, he said no. He didn't believe that our cultures could actually coexist, that two different people from different worlds can actually come together and have and build a beautiful relationship. And yet, 19 freaking years later, here we are. Do you want to learn the tactics that a real U.S. Secret Service agent uses to spot lies? As a former agent, I want to help you. So here's a clip from my new course, Becoming Bulletproof, how to read people and detect deception. When it comes to reading people, the most important thing I want you to remember is to be an active listener. Active listening means listening to a person with all your senses. It's not just listening to what they're saying, it's looking at them. Open your eyes and listen. That's what I always say. Receive them, feel them, use your senses. You will learn that and much more in my course, Becoming Bulletproof, 
how to read people and detect deception. To learn more and sign up, go to bulletproof.impacttheory.com. When I think of hate and the hate that is given to someone, there is probably one person that, from my experience, I think probably receives the worst hate out there. And that was the president and the public figures I protected. I would see them get hate on a one-to-one. I would see them get hate on public television and in the media. I always marveled at the fact that they were being insulted in in every way you could potentially think of. Mm-hmm. And yet they would get up on stage and give a speech. Or we would drive by with the motorcade and somebody would be holding a racially obscene comment about the president, the first lady, Barack Obama. And I always wondered how amazing it was to me that you could have that level of hate, have people protesting, or even people outside the White House. We would have crowds probably every other night protesting outside the White House. And it didn't matter which president it was. I want to be clear. Like, I saw this across the board with all the different presidents. Mm. And I thought, what strength you must have to be able to have people humiliate you and insult you on a public platform, no less, out there for everybody here, so even on a megaphone. I mean, you would hear the, the, the name calling, and yet you got to show up to work. Mm. You can't hide and go into the fetal position. You have to wake up. You have to get up on that stage. You have to speak to all those people. You have to get up and give a speech. You still have to run the country. You still have to do your job. You can't fall apart. And it's interesting because when people reach that status, a lot of the public forget It's a a human being. Mm -hmm. With negative thoughts, insecurities. Yes. I mean, look, you have to have a level of confidence, an extreme level of confidence and fortitude to do that job. But still, at the end of the day, I always wondered if what that person who gave the hate to them, how they would receive if that hate was given back. Mm -hmm. Ooh, I mean, God, that's so strong, especially in real time. Like, to not show, as you're watching this hate go on constantly, to still show up, do your job, be inspiring, hold strong, right? Because let's face it, a president can't look weak. And at least for me, like, when I get my own hate on, whether it's the YouTube channel or anything, it's like sometimes it's things. I have to go back. I have to, like, lick my wounds. I have to process it. And then I, you know, process and then come back forward. And I remember this so much because it was one of those pinnacle moments where it's like you have a choice. And that choice can take you over here or take you completely over here. And the comment was... Lisa, it was an interview and it was like, Lisa, I really love the interviews, but I've got to say your pink leg warmers and your pink um, set and your 90s style is just so off-putting. I can't watch the interview. Now, in that moment, I am so freaking driven, girl, and you know me by my goal. What am I trying to get to and how do I get there and what am I willing to sacrifice in order to get there? And so I just, I abide by that rule. And so as I'm reading it, I'm like, okay, my goal is to impact people. As I'm reading the comment, they are literally saying, the way I look, the way I dress, my style is actually putting them off my goal of impacting them because they can't watch my content anymore. So normally I'm driven by my goal. So usually it's easy for me to go, cool, I can pivot, yep. 
But the second it was hate, it was personal. It was about me. It brought up all the freaking insecurities that Lisa, Lisa had when she was a kid. Like, not good enough. What the hell are you doing? You, I can't believe you're wearing that. All of these things. I was so scared about being mocked as a kid that I abided by what people said. Now I'm my own person. I've got this show. And here I am in this situation where it's my goal or my identity. And I literally stepped back and I said, okay, remove the emotion from it, right? Oh my God, like, I want everyone to like me. I'm not going to freaking like, I don't like, I actually call BS when people are like, I don't care if I'm liked or not. If you had a choice, just a choice, would you choose someone to like you or not like you? You would probably prefer to be liked. Okay. Yes. So that's if what- If it was in harmony with who you are and your collective things, right? Correct. But I just think in general, people want to be liked. Yes. So because I have a very a part of me that is that insecure Lisa that was bullied as a kid and didn't feel good about herself, I do want to be liked. I don't pretend that I don't, but the key is to not make that dictate who you are and how you show up every day. So for me in this situation, I had to sit there and go, it's your goal or your identity, what's more important? And in that moment, I said, okay, it stings. I really want this woman to like me. I really want this woman to like love the show. But at the end of the day, if I betray who I am, who I feel like I want to show up every day to be, who I try to be every day, if I betray that, why am I doing a show to try and empower women? I, I would feel like a liar. I would literally feel like I'm doing the antithesis of what I'm trying to, my goal in trying to impact people. I'm sitting here saying, own who you are. I'm sitting here saying, don't let other people dictate who you are. And yet I'm considering changing the set, changing the way I look for my goal. But ultimately I'll be betraying myself. And in that moment, I actually took the hate that really hurt, that really upset me. And I had utter freaking clarity. And my response was, thank you so much for this. I'm saddened that my outfit doesn't jive with what you like, but this is authentically me. And who would I be if I didn't show up every day to be authentically me? So thank you. But if you can't watch it, then I respect that you need to unsubscribe to the channel. And so the question for me is, instead of trying to change their mind, how do I handle it? How do I show up when someone comes at me? Um, and so that's part of my process. And then I get pride and I get proud of being that girl that would have once let this crumble her and yet being able to articulate it, process it, and then actually respond in kindness, right? Like that was a big thing for me. Instead of being like, well, fuck you. If you don't like my pink leg warmers, then you go, fuck, you know, fuck off and go somewhere else. I could have done that. And emotionally, that was exactly what I wanted to do immediately. But again, it doesn't serve me. It doesn't serve my goal. It doesn't serve who I'm trying to be as a human and as a woman, like who I want to be proud to be, that doesn't fit in an alignment. So I'm like, no, I'm not going to act like that. When you get hate, you feel that you're getting bullied, do you, you look at it as like, is this about what I'm actually doing and I need to change or is this about my identity? Correct. And if it was, let's say, everyone hated on this show, everyone, I would just stop doing it. My goal is impact. And if everyone freaking hates it, it's like, I'm, I'm fine. I don't need to be famous. Like, that's not the goal here. The goal is impact. Remember, I know what my goal is. So, cool, I can create impact in other ways. I can create impact on young girls. I can, you know, create comic books. I can create impact in a million different ways. So if my goal is impact and no one's watching the show, great, cool. What can I learn from it? How do I take that lesson and move it to the next strategy or the next, you know, idea or goal there? But I wouldn't keep going on something 
if it wasn't in alignment with who I am and what my goal is. I, you know, I agree with you. I try to read my comments because I have people that want to engage with me. And I feel that if you take the time to write me a comment, I want to try to put as much energy as I can in responding to you. I do get it like a lot of DMs, but occasionally you get these, these comments or these messages. I don't know. I don't know if maybe, I don't want to say I laugh them off, but I'm just like, I kind of just mm. keep scrolling. I, I've never really sat on them. But again, I mean, I really had front and center a great stage where I saw public figures just getting demolished, called names. We call them uh, hecklers. We had something called a heckler policy. So when the president or first lady um, would get out and speak to a big crowd, we had a policy. Now, as an agent, I could never intervene. As if the president's life was not in danger or the person who I was, I was protecting, if their life was not in danger, I could not intervene in any way. I was not there to silence people's voices mm. or the First Amendment constitutional right. People have a right to call the president or first lady, whatever they want to call them. But you'd see a protectee up on stage giving a speech and then just somebody gets up and I hate you and I this and you're all these, this stuff. And sometimes they'd engage and say, hey, you know, I'm sorry you feel that way or okay. And then sometimes they'd remove the people if they wouldn't comply, if they be, started escalating, becoming more violent mm -hmm. because we didn't want the environment to escalate. But I remember thinking if that person, if he or she, whoever I was protecting could, could take that, I can take anything. So take me through, because I, I think I remember you saying actually, and you've said a few times, when you've done interrogations, you're sitting across from people who freaking hate you. Oh, I right? never even thought about it. And that. what you stand for. So talk to me in those moments, because here's actually even more interestingly, so they're hating on you and you need something from them. You can't just walk away. You can't just freaking scroll. So in the interview interrogation room, they hated me for what I symbolized. And you didn't take that personally then? No. They didn't hate me, Evie, they didn't know me, but they hated what I represented, the U.S. government, uh, special agent, law enforcement. If they spoke to me, they might go to prison or jail, or they just, I was the investigator, so I was the person who brought them in. They, they didn't know me personally. That's a different kind of hate. That hate I had no issues with. Hmm. I, was, I was okay with it. As long as I was ethical, I did my job, I was above board and I didn't violate, violate anybody's rights. As long as I maintained my integrity, which was of the utmost importance, after that, it didn't bother me. Mm. I had no issues. And I maintained that throughout my, my career. All right, so give me, I don't, I know that you can't ever do that. Do these three things and you're fine. Like, I know that you hate that, but what are those, like- For the public haters, right? The yeah, hate? Yeah. Well, one is, I kind of scroll through my messages in my DM. If we're talking about strangers, I'm very kind of, because I wouldn't do anything. I wouldn't, I would never do anything. Plus, I mean, I find comfort in that everybody who does this gets hate. Because when you have the nerve to speak and to share, people are going to hate on you. Now, but I, we're all exposed to this in different ways in our lives. We have strangers who judge us and hate us. So you're asking me, like, how do I deal with it? One, I shut that shit down. I don't expose myself to it. I don't reread it over and over and over again. I scroll through it. I understand and I have that moment where am I doing everything I can? Am I doing the best at everything I can? Um, am I expressing myself in the best way? I'm going to be a person. I might make a mistake. I will. There's, there's no way I won't. And Or is it my ego? Is it my fragile ego that's going to be offended? But if my ego is that fragile, I'll never do anything. Mm -hmm. And I often respect talent out there 
or individuals who get extreme hate and yet they show up to the party. What's up? I'm here. Mm. Have you ever had that sting from a stranger's comment though? Sure. Sure. Like I'm sure I'm sh sure like when I think of like maybe a comment on on my feed or something, but strangers it's not just on social media though. Like you can have strangers people that know you that are acquaintances make comments and say things about your people in your community. I remember I remember this and to this day and I, this bothers me. Um when I was younger, I grew up in a very um, cocooned cultural environment like you. And when I was in college, I wanted to go abroad and go study overseas. It was one of the biggest passions I had. I wanted to get out of my cocoon, go learn different languages, which is one of the things that actually helped me learn like five, six different languages that I speak. I think it's six. One of the first semesters I did is go to Italy. And I had to push very hard to convince my parents they finally gave way because of the kid that I was, they agreed and they supported it. And I went to Italy and I remember before going to Italy, all my friends, the community of friends I have were, and back then it was a little bit different. I think things are changing now, but there was like, what are you doing? Where are you going? And my friend's parents began talking about me and the people in the community were talking about me, about how I was shaming my family. And the word whore was introduced. Only a whore does that. And <laughs> just, just to repeat, going to Italy. Yes, to go study at the American University of Rome so I can go educate myself to do a semester in another country so I could learn about art. I was an art minor mm -hmm. and history and to learn how to speak Italian. They equated that to me leaving to go gallivant around Italy. Mm -hmm. As if I can't gallivant in New York, New York City <laughs> if I want to. I was in college. Yes, that stung. That stayed with me. To this day, I hate that word. Mm. When I hear the word whore, I, I <laughs> one had nothing to do with the other. And what disturbed me more, it was my friends also were like, yeah, that's kind of why would you do that? And I'm like, because I don't want to stay in this small world. But in my culture, it was very much frowned upon. And I kind of felt bad. I don't want to say I felt bad for my parents, but they were hearing this from the community. You let your daughter do what? You let your daughter go here? Well, I went to Italy, came back. It was the best thing I ever did. And I did a semester at school. Then I signed up for another semester. I went to Mexico, mm. learned myself some Spanish. Did a whole semester in Mexico, loved it, came back. Did another semester in college in the United States. Then I did another semester overseas in Europe mm. and then in Northern Africa. And in college, while my friends were in the clubs, the same friends that were calling me who were going along with the, your a whore theme and not pushing back to their parents, they were in the clubs. I was in other countries learning languages and educating myself. Mm. So you tell me whose opinion matters. When I was growing up, one day I came home and I was very upset. Somebody had said something very hateful and cruel to me. When I came home, I found my father and I told him. He took me, he sat me down. And I was waiting for him to give me the sage advice, tell me how to handle it. So he leans in and he looks at me and he says, did you say f He said to me, you don't let anybody make you into a victim. Right now you're a victim. You're sitting here, you're crying and you're upset. He's like, you'd never allow anybody to do that to you. I've always kept that. Now you don't have to say it to someone. You don't have to verbalize it. I usually don't, at least not in personal relationships. But there are those moments where you feel diminished and rather than letting somebody 
crush you or annihilate you, or for you to take on that role of the victim, find that internal voice inside of you to say, no, I'm not going to let you do this to me. Have you ever had your life shattered by a lie? Have you trusted someone only to have them violate that trust? If that sounds like something you have experienced, I want you to watch this. In these examples, you see the cross arms. Again, defensive posture, or if you're dealing with someone like myself, it might just be the position I like to rest in. When you meet people and you're connecting with them, in those first few minutes, look at the way they're standing. If they're standing like this from the onset and they stay this way, that's their normal baseline. If it's not and their hands are down and the conversation goes in a direction they don't like, and you see this, time to note there's a problem. That was for my course, Becoming Bulletproof, how to read people and detect deception. In it, you will learn all the skills I used as a former U.S. Secret Service agent to protect myself and others. To learn how to see through lies and protect yourself, go to bulletproof.impacttheory.com. I'm gonna share a story with you. I've not shared this story with anyone else, but I will share it with everyone. And it's one of those moments where I was upset with myself. It doesn't happen a lot, but I was really upset with myself. I was asked to do a TED Talk pretty much almost like right after I left the service. And they're like, hey, do you want to give a TED Talk? TEDx, excuse me. I want to make sure I say it. TEDx. And I said, sure, great. Let me do it on words, powerful weapon. I based it off of um, my background doing interviews. But there's this like little voice in the back of my head. And it was, Evie, who are you to get up on that stage and give a TED Talk? Like, there's other agents out there that are more senior to you, that have more experience than you, that have more knowledge than you. To my knowledge, at that point, no former agent had ever gone on stage to do that. And I was worried about what other people would think rather than focusing on my TED mm. X. And I got up spit stage. I did okay. It's okay. You guys can Google it. You can watch it. It's okay. But I didn't own it because I was more concerned with being on stage. This is online. I'd never done anything online before. It lives forever. What are my former colleagues going to think about what I'm doing? They're going to be like, who does she think she is to get up on that stage? This guy has more experience. That guy has more experience. Sure, is there somebody with more time, more experience? There's always going to be. But this is the opportunity that was given to me based off of my experience and my expertise. Mm. And I didn't own it, Lisa. I did all right. I didn't give it my all. And to this day, I regret it. And after that, I was like, you know, I had this one chance, this one opportunity, and I blew it. And this is the one true time where I could say the imposter syndrome came in, where I was like, I don't know, you know, why am I on this stage? I shouldn't be here. And I'm mad at myself to this day because I didn't get up there. I didn't own it. I didn't project my voice. I let it, I didn't ruin it, but I could, it just could have owned the moment. And I didn't own the moment because I was worried about what other people would think of me, more so what my former colleagues would think of me. Hmm. So explain to me then, because in the last segment, you literally, with your parents and stuff, you said, I'm not going to let them dictate what I'm going to do, what people think of you. What's the difference then between that and this? Because this was public. Hmm. Like You're online. On state, okay. You're on stage. There's hundreds of people there. Never done anything like that before. Hmm. So now it's 
you're getting into a different space, a different environment. It's you. I don't know what it was, and it's fair. It's like jumping in front of a bullet, no problem. That's what I'm saying. Like, it's, yeah. It was just different. It was different, but it's also exposure. It was very difficult for me to wrap my, my mind around, but I knew I would have hate out there somewhere. Mm. But I also just allowed that to get in here. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, oh, who is she? Who, you know? I don't know if you've ever felt that way where people are like, who's Lisa Billiard to have, like, uh, to be out there speaking? Oh, yes! All the time. I mean, I just literally had it, like, a few months ago where someone reached out, a wonderful literary, literary agent reached out and was like, you know, oh, to Tom, actually, and was like, would Lisa be interested in writing a book? And Tom comes up to me and he's like, babe, I just got an, you know, a text. You know, reached out. Are you interested in writing a book? I was like, oh, that's nice. And I just literally went back to work. And he's just standing he's like, babe, did you just hear what I said? Like you got offered, like someone wants to offer you a book. And I was like, no, no, that's great. That's, that's very sweet. And he's like, why are you being so nonchalant? And I was like, but like who would buy a book from me? And he literally looked at me, he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And I kind of, at the moment I was like, wow, that's so not my mentality. Like that you know me, that I don't think like that. I'm like, okay. Be as good as you possibly can be. Work fucking hard. Show up every day to be the best person. Keep learning every day. You're going to get better. That's my attitude. And this negative, it didn't even dawn on me that I had already dismissed myself. And I was like, huh, wow, that part of me still exists. And it was actually very powerful because I was like, Lisa, that's the old negative self-talk. Because even though it's still very real, like it's still very real in me. It's like, but it hasn't stopped you before. And also thinking like that, does it serve you? Yes or no? Like, does that mindset serve your goal or not serve your goal? It doesn't serve me. My goal is to impact people. So thinking that I'm incapable of writing a book that anyone would buy doesn't serve my goal. So in that moment, I was like, wow, give myself grace for having the negative thought, give myself grace for still having that part of me that is still that 14 year old girl that thinks negative thoughts about her give myself grace, but immediately fucking kick myself in the ass and get back up and don't take that shit from anyone, especially yourself. For the most part, I, my inner critic, I've silenced them in a sense, but there's moments, especially in this career that I'm not familiar with where I don't know, but I'll, I'll try to reach out to get information from people. If I'm questioning something, I'll bounce my issues off of someone else. Or I'll have that moment, is this just, am I just being insecure and mm. not seeing this the right way? Or is this, you know, a real legitimate thing? Yeah. Yeah. Like, is this, I do the same. Is this the young insecure Lisa that's just showing up again? Or is this actually something that I need to pay attention to? Because that's also another thing, is that the inner critic, like, to me, shouldn't always be silenced. The inner critic sometimes is warning you or telling you something. And so, like I've said before, my inner critic or the negative voice is my best mate because I can't stop the inner critic. I can't stop the negative voice. So I just go, okay, instead of stopping it, what if it was my friend? What if it's trying to tell me something? What are you trying to tell me, friend? And literally sometimes it will tell me something like, oh my God, thank you so much. I was about to go in that meeting unprepared and that negative voice saying, you're not good enough. You don't know what you're talking about. Oh, I don't know what I'm talking about. Oh shit, it's right. I don't, I need to go research. So it's actually served me once I'm able to distance my emotions from it. 
So taking away the emotion, what is it trying to tell me? Sometimes it's not trying to tell me anything. It's just the echo of the 14-year-old insecure Lisa. And in those moments, I go, oh, okay, it's just the echo. Don't listen to it. So I'm able to kind of take it and then assess if it's something that's powerful or if it's just that part of me that I haven't been able to, to, to quiet. It's really important to be aware of that inner critic and really not allow that to actually make a home in your head. Mm -hmm. it's, it, I get it that it's going to surface, but it's they can be like a guest who shows up from time right. to time, but they can't be that guest who never leaves. Right, right, right. right? <laughs> it can't be my partner. It can be my friend. Yes, or even a far, a, a far acquaintance. But it's, it's really important when it comes to how you hold yourself back. When I was working on my book, I interviewed... Uh, an individual who is part of the training process for special ops, military special ops. And this is where they take, this isn't just average military, this is high-end special operations, tactical. You're talking about the elite of the elite. And I asked uh, this person who's part of that training design, I said, how do you take the average person and make them this warrior? And the, uh, the individual said to me, I, we don't. The average person doesn't apply. Only the people who truly believe that they can do this, only those people apply. So before we've even had a chance to select anybody out, people self-select. It's purely your belief system. It's purely. So those people who are have doubt, who don't think they can, they've already self-selected out. And I've always been of the mindset, I want somebody else to tell me no. The first no will never come from me. Oh. No is like not. When I hear no, I, I don't hear no. I hear not yet. Mm. Remember this one story with my dad when he came to America. So my dad came to America, Greek immigrant, like very broken English, very ethnic looking. I'm, you know, I'm, I look a certain way. My dad looks straight out of like the Middle East. Um, he's very ethnic looking. So when he came to America, he was, uh, it was in Harlem. We lived in Washington Heights, Harlem area. He was trying to find a job and he would go to different places, to different coffee shops and the diners and put him for jobs and, and nobody was hiring him. No, no, no. And then finally he goes into this coffee shop in Harlem and he says to the person, please, I need a job. And the person's like, no, I don't need anybody. And my brother, you know, my dad was getting, my dad was getting desperate at that time. He's like, no, please, I need a job. He's like, I really... And the guy's like, no, thank you, I've got enough. And then kind of pushed, you know, scored my dad to the door. And then finally, my dad turned around and said to him, I will work for you for free. I will work for you for free. He's like, just try me out. Let me work for two weeks. Try me out. You pay me nothing. Pay me nothing. If I'm good, you keep me. If I'm no good, then I can at least say I have experience So when I go look for a job. And I always remember that story and how he pushed back, because all he heard was no, 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 no. And so I always, when I hear no, I hear not yet. So he ends up, you know, so he says it to the man, the man kind of just like throws his hands up in the air, my dad's kind of standing there defeated. And my dad's like, you know, I'll take trash out, I'll clean up, I'll do whatever you want me to do. So the guy leaves, and my dad's thinking it's over, and he goes to go out, the guy comes out with a mop, mm. and he's like, here, go ahead, dumpsters in the back. And so he began working his first job in America for free. And he did. He worked for free for about two weeks. And then he was eventually offered a job. Mm. So I always think of like that determination of I have to find work and to be 
to deal with that rejection and that inner critic, that defeated part of yourself to think horrible things about yourself. And I guess you find a way to kind of dismiss that inner critic, you know? Yeah, that's so powerful. There is something so beautiful about proving yourself. Um, and it actually made me think about how when we started Quest and we were building it, I didn't have any experience whatsoever. And as we were getting bigger and bigger and bigger, I was very insecure about me running a division. I was like, I don't freaking know what I'm doing. Like, if I had like 40 employees after two years, we grew so quickly, I had 40 employees and even I was like, I've never been a boss before. I don't know how to, like, I just learned on the job. And so over time, it was like, okay, I don't know what I'm doing, but I can get better, I can learn. And in that process, as I went from that to building our studio, our film studio at Quest, I always thought the insecure Lisa comes back, right? Okay, now I've finally got back into te you know television. I've got a studio, I'm building it, but I'm hiring these people with more experience than I have. And so as I'm hiring these people with more experience, I start to feel less qualified for the job. I took the role originally, I was just helping out, remember, I'm just helping my husband. So I build the, sh the, um, the shipping department with no real title. I was like, I'm just building this to help the company. And then when I transitioned over to, okay, now I want to, we were financially, you know, the company was getting successful. We were doing content at Quest. So I started to build out the studio. So going over to build out the studio, I needed the title. So I was like the head of studio. And so I was like, okay, that feels really good. I love this title. It's studio related, which goes back to my roots. I've worked my ass off. I've paid my dues. Now I'm here. I want to be seen as the head of the studio. But over time, I was like, I'm hiring these people that are more experienced than I am. And I'm like, crap. Like, are people going to think that I have this job because I own the company? I didn't like that feeling. Because I'm like, but that's terrible. You should only have something because you're qualified to do it, whether you're the fucking owner of the company or not. So I turned around to Tom. Out of my own insecurities, I turned around to Tom and I pulled him aside one day. And I was like, babe, if ever you don't think, because he's the president of the company, so again, I very much respect roles and titles. If you ever don't think I'm performing at the level of my title, I want you to either demote me, fire me, or hire above me. And it was out of my own ego and confidence that I did it because I never wanted to worry about whether I was doing a good enough job. And I beat, I used to beat myself up a lot, like, do better, do better. What the fuck, Lisa, you're, you're messing up. So I'd push myself and I couldn't actually see if I was doing a good job anymore. So I literally turned to him and I said that to him. And he looked at me and he's like, babe, you know, the goal in my life is to protect my family and provide for my family. He's like, so even if my wife is the one getting in the way, don't worry, I'll fire you or I tell you you're fucking up because you're not going to get in the way of me providing for you. It was actually a very sweet moment. But um, I needed to say that out loud. I needed to for my own sake. But this is where I think that inner critic voice can take away from us. Because rather than, and it's, it reminds me a bit of my TEDx example that I gave you, rather than you just focusing on your job and putting your energy and just doing great and enjoying it and focusing it, there was a part of you that was distracted because you were worried that you didn't belong mm. there, you didn't this, you didn't that. And so not all the energy, all that cognitive, that cognitive load, which is limited and all that emotional energy that you have, because it's finite, rather than you just focusing on what you need to do, it was pulling you this way. You're so right. So I have an, okay, so I'm gonna give you an example of it. When I began to surf, 
to learn how to surf, which I'm not very good. I just want to put that out there. I, I do it because I love it. I love, you know, the movement and I love the ocean. But when I began to surf, I took lessons on, in Long Island, in New York, which is a, a very rough surf. It's not like the Hawaii surf, which is nice. And I began learning to surf at, during the, the month where there's a lot of waves. I remember that waves, they told us, they're like, hey, this is a rough month, this is a rough time to learn. I was like, all right, that's fine. So the instructor takes us all out on our long boards uh, out by the coast. And this was the Rockaways, Rockaway Beach, um, Rockaways Long Beach in New York and Long Island. And so he says, okay, guys, he shows us the moves and he says, start practicing your surf. And he's like, but just by the way, he's like, there's some rocks here. And there were, there were rocks there. He's like, just, you know, just stay away from the rocks. Don't let the current pull you into the rocks, right? So he shows us the moves and we start surfing. So the whole time I'm surfing, it's like I'm being pulled to the rocks, being pulled to the rocks. And I swear, I spent probably a solid hour just paddling away from the rocks. I paddle away, I get pulled. And I'm exhausted. Paddling is the hardest part of surfing. And in the waves, it was hard. And I just kept going and going on and I'm getting frustrated and I'm thinking, this sucks. What was I thinking? So the surf instructor finally comes over. He's like, what are you doing? He's like, I told you to stay away from the rocks. I was like, yes, I'm trying to stay away from them. They're right there. You told me to stay away from them. They keep getting pulled in. And he's like, that's because you keep looking at the rocks. He's like, where are you trying to go? I said, the beach. He's like, so why don't you just focus on the beach? He's like, forget the rocks are even there. And so sure as shit, I get up on my board, I push the rocks aside in my head, and I just, I look at the beach, I look at the beach. And he told me, he's like, where you focus is where your board is going to go. And as soon as I did that, guess where my board went? That way. But because I was so focused on the rocks, my board was going to the rocks. So all I have to say is focus on where you want to go because you don't have the bandwidth to waste it on anything else. No. Interesting psychological breakdown of communication. Like Monica Lewinsky, she also wanted to be under Bill Clinton's desk. How can someone be so selfish? There are thousands of women, men who can't have children but would love to have them when some who can't but don't for their own selfish selves. Imagine if your parents thought like you were, would you be here today, huh? I hope your partner doesn't secretly want kids, oh God, but hasn't got the courage to tell you because without knowing if that's the case, you only made another family member heartbroken for your selfish selves. Wow, I didn't see any of this coming. This comment would have impacted my decision to say out loud. That's how powerful words can be. But luckily today, as you see me here, I'm reading this with utter freaking confidence that I made the right decision. So now with utter compassion, I ask this person why they actually care. What's their position that they are hating and calling me selfish for not having children? <laughs> she's always, it, just so you know, she's always like this. <laughs> find the confidence, find the confidence to do this. Unstoppable scene 1.6, take one. <laughs> <laughs>